The Politocrat is brought to you by the great people at Anchor. Anchor is such a great place to go if you want to get started in podcasting. And it's easy and it's free. Anchor, marvelous stuff, marvelous. And I'm so grateful to the folks at Anchor for getting me going with The Politocrat. If you want to get going and be heard on Apple, on Spotify and everywhere podcasts can be, Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Thursday, April the 30th, 2020. The end of another month. Time flies, and time does strange things, especially when you are not used to being inside almost every minute of every day. I hope that you are well and that you are persevering in these adverse times. A lot going on around us in this world and headlines are coming up after the break that I will be taking shortly. And also a conversation with Dr. Cindy Duke, somebody who is a virologist, a gynecologist, and has talked a lot about the impact of coronavirus and the impact of coronavirus on the black community and other communities around the country, communities of color, and beyond this country as well. So I think that that will be a treat to have this conversation with Dr. Duke. So that is something to look forward to coming up shortly. I'll be back in just a moment with headlines. Welcome back. I want to offer a correction before getting into the headlines. In yesterday's episode, I had said that the New York Times in their article on Tara Reid earlier this month, had cleared Joe Biden of attacking Tara Reid violently. That is not correct. The New York Times did not clear Joe Biden. What happened in the article is they had essentially found a sense of, shall we say, inconclusion, inconclusiveness. Half the people they interviewed corroborated Tara Reid's account, and then the other half of the people who were all Senate staffers, or at least in the offices of Joe Biden as his staff members or as deputies or heads of his office, all said that 
they didn't ever remember Tara Reid complaining or saying anything about any kind of incident with Joe Biden. So therefore, the New York Times rendered things to be inconclusive since half the people said, yes, Tara Reid told them about this incident and yes, they can corroborate what she was saying. And the other half, which were Joe Biden people, who worked with Joe Biden in 1993 in his Senate office, said the opposite. Headlines next. The Politocrat is available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can tweet me, Omar, at... The Popcorn Reel. That's at The Popcorn R-E-E-L. There's also a Twitter page for The Politocrat itself. At The underscore Politocrat. You can also find videos and excerpts from the podcast episodes on YouTube at The Politocrat. There's also video of some of the political events of the day or of the past. Get connected to the politocrat. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Thank you. Welcome back to The Politocrat. Headlines on this Thursday. The legendary actor Irfan Khan passed away this week. He was a Bollywood actor, was very famous there, had a career there, came to Hollywood and was able to flourish as well. A lot of people here in the United States remembered him in such films as Life of Pi, Slumdog Millionaire, and The Namesake, among other movies. Irfan Khan was someone who radiated a lot of warmth, a lot of sincerity, charm, and... One of the good people. One of the good people. Irfan Khan, just 53 years of age. Los Angeles County, beginning today, will test everybody free of charge for COVID-19. That announcement came on Wednesday night from Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. Los Angeles residents all over the county, everybody, regardless of who they are, whether they are elderly, whether they are homeless, whether they have homes, whether they are symptomatic or whether they are asymptomatic, everybody in Los Angeles County will be able to get 
free testing for COVID-19. The test results will be back to them within a day or two or three days maximum. This is what Eric Gar said he said in numerous venues, including on Chris Cuomo's prime time show on CNN last night. The drug remdesivir, a drug that was actually recommended by Trump's trade advisor, Peter Navarro, back in a memo as far back as late January of this year, is a drug that is so far having some very good results. In an initial study, the drug reduced recovery times by four days from COVID-19. As a result, the FDA is fast-tracking the drug as it continues to go undergo trials. The allegations against Joe Biden have yet been unanswered. Tara Reid, who I have talked about on numerous occasions on this podcast, including an episode that I did earlier this month, which has become the most listened to episode of this podcast. Tara Reid's allegations have not been answered by Joe Biden and now Growing numbers of people in the Democratic Party, including some of the individuals whose bosses have coalesced around him, former press secretaries, former campaign advisors to Pete Buttigieg, for example, in his camp are saying that Joe Biden now must come forward and answer these allegations. So far, Joe Biden has not done so. And the Associated Press had a story today about that. And it is not a good thing for the Democratic Party. And this article goes into some detail about that. And he's got the GOP and the right wing at his heels as well. So Joe Biden now in a situation where he really cannot run or hide anymore. This article by Alexandra Jaffe, it's called Biden Assault Allegation Prompts GOP Attacks, Dem Worries. That is in today's Associated Press. So that is something that is part of the news and it really has become an issue. Donna Brazil has said this too. She is the former DNC chairwoman, as you know, Democratic National Committee. And she has said in this article, quote, it's not helping, it's just damaging. Not only to the person who has come forward, but it's also damaging the candidate. So you now have Liz Smith, who worked as a top strategist on the Buttigieg campaign, and now the former DNC chairwoman, Dona Brazil, both, among others, coming up and saying that Joe Biden must 
come forward and speak personally. Which I think he should do. I've called for that as well. Stacey Abrams, as you know, on Tuesday on Don Lemon's show, backed Joe Biden and said that while women have the right to come forward, she believes Joe Biden. Stacey Abrams is at the moment looking to become Joe Biden's vice presidential pick. Right now, we also have a situation where numerous other publications and now television news media are putting these allegations out there. So now this has become now in the mainstream after weeks of it being on progressive media and on podcasts, specifically Katie Halper's podcast. It is now something that cannot be ignored anymore because you now have CNN talking about it. You have MSNBC of all places talking about it now. Chris Hayes did a story on it yesterday in his show. So Joe Biden now, and now you've got the Associated Press, you've got the Washington Post, you've got the New York Times who did another article on this yesterday. And numerous other publications, the LA Times has an article on this. So right now, Joe Biden will have to come forward here. The infection infection rates in Brazil are surging. Jair Bolsonaro, who fired his health minister, who fired his federal police chief, now has a real disaster on his hands. He has not believed in physical distancing or stay-at-home measures. And as a result, there have been more than 5,000 deaths in Brazil and over 70,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus. In Japan, people are not staying at home either. Many people are still going out, risking infection. People are going into restaurants. There is no social distancing in Japan. And you can imagine how difficult that would be to navigate. Meanwhile, California Governor Gavin Newsom, who has come in for some criticism, according to an article in today's Los Angeles Times, will be ordering all beaches and state parks closed beginning on Friday, according to a memo sent to police chiefs across the state of California. That is in today's Associated Press. This comes on the heels of Huntington Beach and Newport Beach, both in Southern California, being packed with beachgoers over the last weekend. Newsom had previously advised individuals all across the state not to take advantage of the nice weather that California has been seeing over the last week to go to the beach. And he urged people to stay home, to do their part, to stay home and to flatten the curve of this virus. But he has largely been ignored 
in places like Newport Beach and Huntington Beach. As a result, he will be ordering all beaches and state parks throughout California to be closed starting tomorrow. Sadly, the death toll here in the United States from coronavirus has exceeded 61,000 people as of this recording. Donald Trump says that he will not be extending the social distancing guidelines that have been put out by the White House. Donald Trump also has been erupting over the last day or so at his campaign team because he has been shown numbers that do not bode well for him this November. Varying polls show Joe Biden doing well in states that Trump has to win, including Michigan, including Ohio, and including Wisconsin. Trump at one point shouted and raged at his campaign manager, Brad Pascal, threatening to sue him at one point. Donald Trump cares only about numbers and the numbers he cares about are not the 61,000 people who have died so far and counting here in the United States from coronavirus. It is the number that has a percentage sign behind it in any given poll. That is the number he cares about most, aside from the number that appears after the dollar sign. An organization in Los Angeles is suing Trump's government, suing the federal government after the stimulus package was not given to them because their spouses were married to immigrants. There is a group of Mexican immigrants, a coalition that will and has filed a lawsuit against Trump's administration. Trump had put out an order recently that, that said that, or at least there was news that people who were married to immigrants, whether undocumented or not, as far as I know, would not be getting stimulus checks. Finally, one other piece of news among the many that are out there. In New York City, the NYPD had to break up a funeral because of physical distance violations. This was in a Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn. And Bill de Blasio, the New York City mayor, commented on it and actually went to the site because there were hundreds, if not thousands, of Hasidim 
in an area of Brooklyn congregating in a funeral, defying and violating physical distancing guidelines, police had to break up the gathering. Mayor de Blasio tweeted about the Jewish community in general and said that people needed to observe the guidelines or he would have to cite and arrest them. His tweet generalizing about the Jewish community got him, to, got him into a lot of hot water. Millions of European workers are not losing their jobs. Because there are governments all throughout Europe who are paying their workers, paying workers, paying people. In Germany, this is also happening. In France, this is happening. In a number of places across Europe, a lot of people are being supported. In Germany, the government paying up to 60% of net salaries. And sometimes even higher depending on some situations. If they have children, it's 67%. And it depends on the companies they're working with. In the UK, it's 80% of salaries. In France, there's also a certain percentage of salary as well. So many other news stories out there many stories out there and those are just a few of the headlines for this Thursday April the 30th Yesterday I had a conversation with Dr. Cindy Duke. He talked about a number of things, including black health, the coronavirus, black women and health outcomes, and also advice regarding the coronavirus and what you can do to safeguard yourself against it. I want to thank you for, for joining me. This is Dr. Cindy Duke. Um, she is an obstetrician. She's been in medicine for a long time as a doctor. She's a Hopkins, Johns Hopkins trained. She's Yale trained. She is a virologist. She's had a lot of experience as a doctor in practicing medicine and talking about the very important issues that matter. And I have uh, invited her today and I thank you so much, Dr. Duke. You can find Dr. Duke on a wonderful podcast, by the way, that she does. Um, about girl power and survival an international podcast that she does and she's speaking on these issues all the time self-empowerment and improvement yeah. of lives so Dr. Duke thank you very much for your time thank you for having me it's a true pleasure to be here thank you again and again you've talked about these issues I watched one of your your podcasts just the other day actually 
and you were talking about the rates of testing, you were talking about some of the issues uh, with this virus and how it's applying itself in communities and what kinds of approaches are being taken. So a a lot of what you said dovetails with what I wanted to talk about, um, particularly when it comes to the health outcomes for black women. We know, and you know well as well, that black women are really at the brunt of a lot of things just generally ordinarily before we even get to coronavirus. And now we're finding out that there are even greater rates of black women who are um, either dying or or being afflicted from this virus. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you've seen so far? Yes. So in terms of the numbers, we're seeing that people of color, black people in particular, are suffering more severe outcomes from coronavirus infection and actually the disease that the virus causes, which is COVID-19. In terms of the black community, black men are affected the most, but closely followed by black women. We're seeing somewhere around 52% of black men who contract coronavirus and develop COVID-19 having uh, severe enough outcomes that either require hospitalization or uh, mechanical ventilation, assistance to help them breathe. And of women, it's about 49%. So it's not a huge difference. Statistically, it may even be equal. But we're seeing uh, the hardest hit, um, particularly so if they have underlying disease, which unfortunately is a big factor here. And so in black communities across the country, we do see higher rates of underlying diseases like obesity, diabetes, hypertension, kidney failure. And these are all diseases that then predisposes one to actually becoming more sick when you get infected by coronavirus. So we don't see any evidence that black people are more infected than anyone else. But what we are seeing is that once they're infected, they're more likely to get very ill compared to their non-black counterparts. Absolutely. And one of the things that that I think needs to keep being repeated, apart from what you've just said, is that there are systemic racism outcomes. Systemic racism has a great deal to do with this. Yes. So we see lots of outcomes in terms of just general health, like you were saying, Uh, racism and institutionalized disparities have long been played a role in health and black health in the United States amongst men, amongst women, uh, women of reproductive age. We see that with the higher mortality and morbidity numbers that you see in pregnancy. Uh, compared to other non-black groups of women, we see it in birth outcomes in terms of uh, the deaths of babies um, from pregnant women uh, who are black versus non. And we can compare that also to women who are black from other countries, women who are black and immigrants to the United States versus those who are black and first generation. And you literally see a change in that morbidity and mortality the longer someone spends in the United States. And that is a direct correlation to the longstanding institutional and systemic racist policies. You know, and some people get very upset by the word racist because I know a lot of people within healthcare, for example, pride themselves in saying, I am not a racist, which is true. I know most people in medicine are not racist, but there are biases that have long past been passed on and they're manifested in how care is delivered, access to care. Where are the good hospitals? Where are the great uh, clinics? Where are the testing sites? 
And so that's how it's manifested. It's not necessarily that there are people who are saying, I don't treat black people. It's not that there are doctors saying, I am going to treat a black person any less than someone who's not black. It's not that at all. It's actually there are lots of great, great people in the system, but the system itself was designed with these inherent biases. Right. One of the things that I, I always, this always just blows my mind, and I'm not naive to any of what you've been speaking of, Doctor, but one of the things, Dr. Cindy, that and I know Dr. Cindy is, uh, look, Dr. Cindy, you've been doing this. Um, you have a lot of experience as a doctor, so you can speak very well and obviously on all of these issues and more. And I thank you again um, for, for your articulations and what you're saying. Yes. One of the things I wanted to say, though, is Serena Williams has yeah. was basically pleading Yes. For doctors to listen to her and do tests and run this and run that. I'm sure you remember that very clearly, don't you? I remember Serena's story very clearly. Uh, Beyonce also had um, preeclampsia. And it does. It points out again, which is patients need to be heard. Historically, black women aren't heard as clearly in any setting, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be in healthcare, and certainly when you're in a very vulnerable state as in giving birth or recently giving birth has was the case for Serena and it highlights that bias again because many people at face value would say oh we heard her we just didn't think she was serious about it and Serena in particular had what we call uh, pre-existing conditions that put her at risk for what she was complaining of and yet no one seemed to be alerted which stunned me when I was reading that story because she was someone with a history of blood clots, therefore increased risk for blood clots in pregnancy and postpartum, up to six weeks postpartum. And so I'm really grateful that she lived to tell her story and that her story is now informing not just us in the black community, but the entire medical community. I know it was an eye opener because she should have been taken seriously from the moment she spoke. I'm glad she insisted on it because it saved her life, obviously. Right. I mean, if you can't take the word seriously of a 22, 23 time Grand Slam tennis champion. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, what about us? Yes. Right. Exactly. And I've spoken to a lot of patients for whom that is their fear going into pregnancy. They're worried that they won't be heard. What about, you know, is my being black the biggest risk factor for my pregnancy and my birth outcome? And it's why I do the work that I do. It's why a lot of my colleagues who are in this field and, you know, the Black Mamas Matter and all these different uh, advocacy groups that are now uh, coming up, that's what they're working on. Because the truth is, all patients need to be heard. And a Black patient in labor is no less important, and her word is no less important than any other patient. And we need to work on those biases, work on standardized protocol so that if a patient complains of something it's not just up to the nurse to determine if they're going to communicate the story it's not just up to the doctor to say oh yeah let's look into this it should be also based on very strict parameters and protocols that would trigger certain interventions in addition to using gestalt i mean as a doctor i rely on my gestalt a lot that's true mm -hmm. but i also know that my patient knows their body Absolutely. Absolutely. And just a couple more things that I wanted to just speak with you about and ask you about. I don't know if you uh, had known a story about a nurse in London, a, a black woman, a black nurse. She um, had 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 COVID-19. 
she was working at a hospital uh, in the NHS, National Health Service in the UK. And uh, she got sick, she got ill. She was all, also pregnant, as a matter of fact. Wait, yes. She died. Oh, Her no. baby was delivered through cesarean. And what struck me about that is that, you know, she worked in a hospital and she still was not saved. And she was a nurse at a hospital in London or just outside London. And on the very same day, and this happened the last week or week or, week or two ago. I have to look this up, yes. And the thing is, the same day on CNN, I had seen Anderson Cooper interview a woman, a white woman, who mm-hmm. was in a coma, who was pregnant. She had given birth while she was in the coma and yeah. obviously lived to tell about it and she got to speak. To... So I just highlighted that contrast. Two different cities. She was in New York City. Two different mm-hmm. cities, two different countries, two different women. Right. And how that the black woman's outcome was mm-hmm. fatal as we know that black mortality rates during t- childbirth for black women are far higher. Three, four, maybe even five times higher than there are for That's... white women. Such a powerful contrast. It's a powerful contrast. Um, I wonder, the person who Anderson Cooper was interviewing, was she also in healthcare? Um, I don't remember that she was or not, so I should have been able to get that information before speaking to you. So I think one of the biggest risk factors that you highlighted there is being a healthcare worker. And as a matter of fact, most of the governing bodies across the world now actually recommend that pregnant healthcare workers should avoid direct patient care during this COVID-19 crisis for the very reason, just if one were pregnant and became exposed to the virus and became uh, infected, your risk seems to be worse for COVID-19. So while pregnant women are no more at risk for getting infected, once they're infected, we are seeing some bad outcomes. I would imagine being a nurse working within the health system, she may have been exposed multiple times so we start talking about inoculation and her getting a higher inoculum not knowing what her underlying health history was that might have also um, made things worse so that's just an awfully sad story and god knows what the comparison will you know pan out in terms of all the factors but oh my gosh that's horrible and highlights you know the information gap which is we have disparities in access disparities in healthcare diagnosis, etc. But the other thing we seem to have a huge disparity in amongst communities of color worldwide is information. Mm. Information. Mm. Timely information. And are we all getting the same information about our health status, our situation, the pandemic? Certainly, um, many communities of color didn't even get the accurate information about COVID-19 in the beginning. And it makes you wonder why. Why were certain groups targeted with certain misinformation compared to others? Um, You think back to the election of 2016, and we then learned that groups were fed information um, intentionally to keep them from voting. And so perhaps when this is all done, we'll learn that there were also some targeted misinformation efforts in this pandemic as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there had been, and I'm sure you've heard this too, this idea that black people can't get the coronavirus. Yes, yes. And you wonder, first of all, the question was, who started that? 
And, you know, as one person who, when I saw that, I immediately took to social media to explain to people, hey, this isn't true. As a PhD trained virologist, I want you to know viruses do not discriminate. That is not how they work. And yet, unfortunately, there were lots and lots of information being spread and pushed out there amongst uh, social media, and particularly amongst black social media groups saying, don't worry, we're immune. Just look at Africa. There's no... Uh, you know, there's no COVID over there. We're good. And that may have led to some, you know, false sense of reassurance. Now, other disparities, I think, really played into what we're seeing as well in our communities with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So one, right, I was actually just talking to someone in New York City who's been looking at the statistics. And the New York City numbers, now that they're starting to break them down, are really striking. You know, 65% of those who are hardest hit by COVID-19 in New York City fall into what's called the low-income category, of which 78% are black New Yorkers, right? And so New Yorkers are disproportionately hard hit. Communities of color are disproportionately harder hit. And black communities in New York City are disproportionately harder hit. Amongst healthcare workers in New York City, I learned today, 35% of New York's healthcare workers are black. And, of course, they're among some of the hardest hit with the pandemic. And so you're seeing that. We're seeing more um, MTA workers, the largest professional group, hardest hit by COVID-19 in New York City, are Metropolitan Transit Authority workers, um, primarily of which I think about 41% of them are Black. And so we're seeing these numbers play out partly because of where people work, but also because people have to work. If you're in a low-income community, you're more likely to have a job that does not have paid sick leave. And so you're more likely to keep going to work, whether you have symptoms or your colleagues have symptoms. So you're more likely to be exposed. We saw that. You're less likely to have access to nutritional food, um, nutritious food, rather. And you're less likely to have access to city parks, etc., pre-COVID to help you stay healthy. And all these things come together to work against the very communities that are now artists' head. Yes, and to your point, Dr. Cindy, as you may know, in the UK, for example, 80% of the care workers in healthcare who are passing away from this virus are black people, uh, Asian people, which are in, in India and other areas, and other ethnic backgrounds of color. Yes. Staggering. Right. Staggering, um, but not surprising given that the National Health Service was very much dependent on people of color to work in the system, which was one of the things that caught my attention when Brexit happened, because I realized that those who voted for Brexit didn't understand the makeup of their professional services and what made their system good. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, yeah, and exactly. And you point out, because back in the 1950s, yes. um, when uh, a lot of people from from the Caribbean and elsewhere were coming over to actually assist and help England and the UK in general rebuild after after World War Two, a lot of people went into the National Health Service and be, were doctors and nurses and really were the lifeline and the lifeblood of rehabilitating that country. And, they did. Um, and kept it going. Yes. <laughs> Very sad indeed, and I've been following that election in the UK very closely up until that point. 
and there was an absence of any of what you've just said. Complete absence. And um, it always makes you wonder, why? Why? You know, these very critically important pieces of information that then lead voters to have misinformation that hurts even them. You know, you look across the United States right now, and communities of color are extremely hard hit. But so are non-colored communities that are low income. And yet, these are many of the people who actually, if given a vote, will vote against their own interests. Very interesting. Yes, it is. It's staggering. And we could talk about that for a long, long time as to why. And I have some theories about that, too, and I'm sure you do. I want to ask you just a couple of other things. Um, You mentioned this earlier, and I wanted to get this. You actually anticipated one of the things I was going to say. When you talked about the information that comes in, the service sector jobs, where black people are most likely to be because of the systemic racism, because of where that leads those job opportunities to go into. And what we're seeing now here in the U.S., and I'm sure you've seen this, these meatpacking plants where Donald Trump is telling people, go back to work. He signed an executive order yesterday talking about, well, well, on on, uh, Tuesday, talking about this. And you have states now South Dakota among them, Iowa among them, saying, look, if you guys don't go back to work, you won't be able to collect your unemployment benefits. We will consider you voluntarily quitting. Yes. It's a really difficult bind that you're putting people in when you ask them to choose between work and their lives. It's a terrible catch-22. And I would say, as a physician and virologist, what strikes me with these orders is, okay, I could understand you're saying people need to get back to work, the economy needs to go, but what are you putting in place to prevent further outbreaks? We've proven that in these meatpacking plants, they have outbreaks. You know, many of them have now been, in terms of density of outbreak, the highest outbreak numbers of the country at these meatpacking plants. Yet, with these orders, were no conversations about how do we get everyone tested? How do we check for antibodies? How do we set up a surveillance protocol so that these employees know that their best interests are being held at heart if they're going back to work? So here you are tying the hands of people who they want to work. Everybody wants to work. I don't know people who don't want to work, but they want to be safe at work. And that is not asking too much. And I think that is where a lot of these orders and policies that are coming out of federal and state level agencies fall short is they're not factoring in that part, which is you just need to make people feel safe. And for the public good, it makes sense to make sure everyone feels safe and has the resources. Absolutely. Uh, and what and what would you say then about messaging? Because you've talked about the communication or lack thereof in our neighborhoods. You know, I've seen a number of programs and a number of people who are yes. prominent in the black community telling, saying things like, well, you guys need to eat better. You guys need to do this. You know, a lot of this finger wagging, how dare you not be responsible people. That's yes. what I've seen. You may have seen this too. What would your messaging be? Because yes, we would all love to have better diets. We would all, we all aspire, many of us, because not everybody's in this category, but there are obviously people who would love to be able to eat better if they could afford to. If they could afford it and if the food were available. In a lot of our urban centers, they have what we call food deserts. And food deserts can take the form of many things. So, for example, specific to this pandemic, one of our biggest directives is physical distancing. We're telling people, stay home, right? Maintain a six-foot distance. 
if you're living in many communities of color, which are in urban centers around the world, but particularly in the United States, your urban center does not have a supermarket. It doesn't have a vegetable market. Uh, things that most people who don't live in urban centers take for granted, right? Many of us take for granted. If I go to my local supermarket, I have aisles of vegetables and fruits. I mean, and where I live, I'm choosing not just from peppers, but are they organically grown? Are they hothouse grown? Are they, you know, <laughs> there are like types of peppers to choose from. And my mom who's from the Caribbean is like, can you pick up a pepper, please? You know, and because, you know, like, I got to read all the different labels to figure out which one, what fertilizer they use or not. But in an urban center, many times these are not choices that these people have. So when we're talking to them and wagging our fingers, it's actually out of touch. You're out of touch when you do that because the truth is they want the same things we you have access to. It's not that they don't want to eat healthy food. It's not that they don't want to cook vegetables. But if you don't have access to it, you can't cook what you don't have. You, you know, for many of them, in order to get good food, you have to get into a car and drive for miles to the suburbs in order to or, or take mass transit, which again is public transportation, you're putting yourself at risk. And so if this is someone who's sitting at home who's a diabetic, an asthmatic, they have a choice to make, which is do I stay at home knowing that I have these underlying risk factors and not get sick? Or do I take the chance of going out there to find that healthy food that the person wagging their finger is talking about and then contract the virus anyway? Right. It's a crack too. Um, if they're not working, these vegetables don't they're not cheap. You know, fresh food isn't cheap. The truth is a lot of American food, you're from um, outside the US, so am I. Food in the United States is cheap, particularly processed food, because it's highly subsidized. But if people actually had to pay the value for food, most of us wouldn't be able to afford it, including those who are already low income and working and living paycheck to paycheck. Yes, and you're seeing, obviously, these food banks and how many people, miles-long lines, waiting to get in these food banks. And there's shortages, too, now. I'm sure you're aware of that. Banks have huge shortages. Actually, that was my conversation today was about the shortages, particularly in New York City. And the shortages are actually twofold. So for many of the food banks, they don't have enough food. But the other is many of them don't have enough staff staff the food bank. And so some of them are having to shut down. You know, you take some place like New York City, for example, where 700,000 children are what we call food poor. And they rely on the school system for two out of three of their daily meals. Now the schools are shut until the fall. And so you have 700,000 children in New York City without access to regular food anymore. You have parents who are now either laid off. I think 1.2 million people are now out of work in New York City. The unemployment rate has skyrocketed to 25 to 30 percent. You have uh, we have food assistance programs in the United States. It's called SNAP. It used to be the food stamp program. Well, SNAP is available, but many people don't know how to apply for it. Plus, with the current administration in the United States, they made a number of changes. To the SNAP application process. Some of it is murky, and so although there's a lot available through that route, many people are afraid. You know, when the changes were first made by this administration, one of the things that happened with in terms of SNAP was 
because they said if you're an immigrant, you may not be eligible for SNAP, moreover, we may deport you. Now, that's not entirely true. Actually, it's not true. If you're an immigrant in legal standing or your children are in legal standing, you can apply for assistance for them. But that was not the messaging that came out to communities. And so now you have communities in need who are like, we're not going to apply for that because that's going to break up my family. Right. Yeah, absolutely. In light of all of what you've just said and what we've been talking about, particularly in the area of messaging and communication, what kinds of advice would you be giving people or are you giving people, particularly in the black community, an advice about dealing with this virus and and the do's and don'ts? What kinds of things and messages are you sending out? You know, I'm giving the usual messages that we're telling everyone, which is wear a mask when you go outside, right? If you must go out, wear a mask. And if you don't have access to a regular mask, so the cloth masks work. Um, there's a lovely study just published that said a cloth mask covered by a nylon from a stocking, you know, we call the nylon stockings, is just as effective as the N95 uh, surgical mask. So that's one, right? Washing our hands, washing our hands while at home. Even if you're like, I'm, I've been at home for six weeks, there's no way I'm infecting myself. It's good practice to wash your hands at home so that when you're out, you remember what to do. Same goes with your children. Um, figuring out who are the high-risk members of your family and isolating them a little bit more, meaning keeping them at home while you designate someone to be the person that makes the food run, the person that goes to the supermarket, using uh, community organizations when you can to supply food to the most vulnerable in your community, the elderly. are They may not be elderly, but the infirm. So checking in on those people and checking to see how they can be helped. Um, I've seen a couple programs advertised around the country where different church groups, etc., are now they contact households, contact families, figure out what their needs are in terms of food, and then they'll deliver a box to their door. And I think it's time we start doing things like that more for our communities. Yes, it's great to have federal help, but the wheels of federal help are slow. It takes time to get things going. Um, even when they mobilize and fund big bills, the, it's trickled out. The bills are trickled out. They don't necessarily make it to the communities that need them. Um, as we're seeing, a lot of the bailout money has not even landed in small businesses, which are usually the ones that are in these communities, serving these communities directly. And so we need more community engagement and we need to do more within the communities. And people are already doing a lot. I don't mean to make it sound like they're not. Lots of people are doing amazing things, but figuring out the network, figuring out how you can help. Um, you know, I'm a proponent, even if you may not identify religiously with some of the organizations in your town or your city, if they're doing work at getting food to people, getting uh, necessary medications to people, you know, again, we keep saying diabetes is currently the biggest risk factor for COVID-19 outcome. Yet, we have a lot of diabetics living in black communities right now who are either out of medicines because they've run out or because the medicines are so expensive, they're now rationing their medication. So they're not taking the doses needed to actually have control of their diabetes. And as a consequence, they're still at even greater risk for not just outcomes from COVID-19, but they may go into a diabetic coma. They can have a stroke. They can have a heart attack. So we really need to reach out and start mobilizing 
And I myself am doing that because I want to see more done. Um, but as a whole, we can all do this. Absolutely. And, and, and there's also, I'm sure you've seen this as well in recent publications and news reports about people in their 30s and 40s getting strokes. And that may be the first symptom or first outcome that they know of. And they're dying from these strokes yes. due to this virus. The strokes are worrisome, too, because many people, again, are having symptoms that they at first don't think are a stroke because they're not your classic stroke, right? Most of us have been taught that if you have a stroke, you'll see a part of the face drooping. Someone will have numbness. Someone will be unable to move. But some strokes only manifest in changes in how you speak, you know? And so you may either speak slower or you speak more of what will sound like gibberish to another person, not to you. You don't realize you're not making sense. <laughs> and so there are many people sitting at home with that. There are others who are having what are called transient symptoms in the lead up. So they may have a little bit of a paralysis or a droop, but then it goes away after a few hours and they say, oh, you know, but that's really a warning sign for the big one that's coming. Wow. And wow. yes, that's, that's known as a transient ischemic attack. And so there's so many different things. And this is also why I'm encouraging people to utilize telemedicine and telehealth. And so if you're at home, because I think, honestly, most people in the black community are heeding the warnings. They're staying home. They're practicing physical distancing. They're washing their heads. They're wearing their masks. But they're also afraid to engage with healthcare for multiple reasons. One is the long history of distrust based on the long disparity and uh, biases related to how healthcare interacted with these communities, right? Not the patient's fault. Healthcare did not do right for a long time by many communities. Tuskegee but experiments. Look at look at look at the experiments on black women back in the eighteen nineteen hundreds. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I'm a gynecologist. I am super super aware and saddened to say that a lot of the advancements and the tools that we use today. I'm getting goosebumps when I say it because it always happens to me that we use today in gynecology came as a result of experiments, non-consensual experiments done on black women without anesthetic, without even an explanation for why they were undergoing what they were undergoing. And so I feel honored every day to know that I can now swing the pendulum. I am now a descendant of those people fighting to be a force for change for the good and to finally bring equality in that change. Um, and yes, we, Tuskegee, you know, you had black men in Tuskegee, Alabama with syphilis who were continued to be followed, even though there was now an effective antibiotic being made available to everyone else in the country. And just because they wanted to see the progression of the disease, which syphilis, most of us nowadays don't know, but syphilis, when untreated, is highly disabling. It causes dementia. It causes facial de um, deformity. It causes uh, loss of neurological sensation. People have nervous system issues. People have chronic issues and ultimately death if it's not treated with penicillin. And that was withheld because they wanted to see the true progression. And so with that in mind, why is someone going to trust the system unless the system shows that they're ready? But I'm here to say as a black woman myself, 
that there are people in the system who are pushing, and there are many people in the system, including non-black people, who want the system to change. And we want you to know there are ways to make it change, including using telemedicine and telehealth. Absolutely. Well, that's really great to hear. And also, one thing I really hope is that all these tests are going to be free of charge. You know, we hear about antibody testing, we hear about drive-through yeah. testing, but the yeah. question that's not being asked, <clears throat> excuse me, is are these tests free of charge? And I don't so know that they far, are. So far, the government has said that it will pay for the tests. Now, I've spoken to the testing companies. Uh, I spoke to one yesterday. And they all say the same words, which is if a patient has insurance, it's being billed to insurance. If the insurance won't cover it, the government has said they would pay. And that's what everybody keeps saying. The government has said they would pay. So the short answer is we don't know. Right. <laughs> the hope is that it's free. Um, I would think uh, it's unprecedented what we're facing. And again, like I said, the wheels of government are slow. And so it'll take some time, but at least verbally and in written documentation that they've given to the testing companies, the government has indicated that they will pay. Well, we shall see about that indeed. <laughs> um, <laughs> before you go, I was just going to say to you, tell tell everybody listening um where they can contact you your podcast all those things so that yeah. they really appreciate your help so that people can really continue to benefit um from yeah. the advice and the insights and the wisdom and experience that you have because it's very important what you're telling everybody thank you i can be found on social media at dr cindy emma's and mary duke cindy m duke so dr cindy m duke i'm on twitter i'm on instagram i'm on pinterest i'm on facebook um, I also have a podcast, Girl Powered Success and Survival International, more commonly known as Gripsy. And Gripsy is actually part of a foundation that I have that's aimed at empowering women, particularly women of color from around the world, to help them go back to their communities and further empower others by uh, providing scholarships and grants needed to get different training skill sets around the world and go back to their communities. Um, other than that, I'm a physician, I'm a practicing fertility doctor and a PhD trained virologist. So I'm out there talking a lot about COVID-19. I do Facebook lives, uh, talking to other uh, invited guests about the aspects of this um, pandemic that's not yet seen, uh, particularly talking about the after effects. You know, we're all still focused on front facing stuff, which is people are getting infected, people are getting hospitalized, people are dying. What we're not very much talking about yet is what about the people who are coming out of hospital? They're coming out highly disabled. Uh, they're coming out unable to work. Uh, again, with the disparities in mind, it means communities that are already hard hit by everything are now having huge waves of disabled people coming back into the community, unable to work, unable to support their families. And so I started uh, conversations about this and conversations with other larger philanthropic organizations to see how we can get the word out and how we can start supporting not just the front end of COVID-19, but how do we now go in and start preparing for the long term, right? It's not just about opening up the country. It's about how are we going to support our communities that were already struggling, already having a tough time, and now they're hit even harder because family members are coming home unable to walk, unable to function, um, person who's recovered from COVID-19 is not the same as someone who's recovered from the flu. You know, they're not coming back home 100%. 
and just not. And this is mental health we're also talking about here, mental health. Mental health. And it's mental health not just for the person who was affected, but for their extended family. Uh, Mental health as it relates to uh, the trauma that we've all experienced here and the fear that we all now have. There's a collective fear, whether we admit to it or not. We're all afraid. We're all afraid. And we need help, and we need to help each other, and we need to acknowledge what we're all experiencing. Definitely need to communicate with each other 100%. 100%. Dr. Cindy, thank you so very much. Dr. Cindy Duke. Really appreciate your time here on The Politocrat today. Thank you so very much and take care. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Cindy Duke. And there's a postscript. Georgia had revealed, the state of Georgia, that of its patients in hospital for COVID-19, at least 80, 80% of them were African-American. Of the patients in Georgia hospitals hospitalized for COVID-19, over 80% were African-American. Let that sink in for a few moments. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore.